Would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? All I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. You may have forgotten that before Russia was hacking your grandma's Facebook page, they were doing actual superpower stuff, like invading countries, overthrowing governments. Why would you allow an attack like this on the United States? Why have you decided the Russian authorities, myself included, gave anybody permission to do this? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So my esteemed colleague, Herr Yasha Monk, dislikes Twitter and rightly points out it gives an alarmingly false view of the United States as a bunch of liberal wonks trying to chip off jokes who do nothing but use the Mueller report as Hustler magazine. And, you know, I get that. But I'm not leaving Twitter, unlike Yasha, because I worry about my immune system. Everyone runs so hot on Twitter, I need it like a fever to burn out my false beliefs. Like, Mueller found no evidence of obstruction. I mean, that kind of thing can creep into almost every conversation I have with friends and family and strangers alike. And I need the hotheads on Twitter constantly reminding me of the atrocities at the border, of the reality of the Mueller report, in order to keep me sane. Anyway... I don't really like to relax, so I'll stick with the howling madhouse of echo chambers that is Twitter. You all more leisurely, sane people can stick with the opiate of the masses in the yummy, sunny filters on Instagram. One of my favorite finds on Twitter, though, is a man very outside the echo chamber of American Mueller fiends. He's Alexei Kavalov, and he's my guest today. Alexei, who's a dissident Russian journalist, believes that Vladimir Putin is not the mastermind of all evil, but rather a washed-up old KGB figure who's possibly not long for his post as president. And that to overestimate Putin, says Kovalev, is not just Russophobic, it's perilous. I'll be joined by Alexei Kovalev from Moscow in just a minute, but first, the tweets. Why didn't President Obama do something about Russia in September before November election when told by the FBI he did nothing and had no intention of doing anything? Gallup poll. 56% of Americans rate their financial situation as excellent or good. This is the highest number since 2002 and up 10 points since 2016. I am overriding the decommission order of the magnificent aircraft carrier Harry S. Truman, built in 1998, fairly new, and considered one of the largest and finest in the world. It will be updated at a fraction of the cost of a new one, which also are being built. Congress must change the immigration laws now. Dems won't act. Wall is being built 400 miles by the end of next year. Mexico must stop the march to a border. At Fox and Friends. 
Joining me on the line from Moscow is Alexei Kovalev. Welcome to Trumpcast. Hi there. Hi. Welcome back. <laughs> it's been two and a half years, something like that, two plus years since you were here to talk about how Americans with their recently elected President Donald Trump might deal with press conferences, things you'd learned attending press conferences with President Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And what a couple of years these were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think about how we've handled press conferences? As far as press conferences go, they were fine, I guess. You know, you don't really expect to get some uh, straightforward answers from press conferences, do you? No, but you also thought there was something distinctive about Trump that made him at the time seem potentially like Putin. This is the kind of thing that Masha Gessen at The New Yorker warned about in the very beginning. Also, you've sort of departed from the idea that they're kindred spirits or they're two of a kind, Putin and Trump. But at first you had instructions for us that I thought were very good about how to handle a populist, an aspiring authoritarian, the kind of things he did, his avoidance, his lies. Tell us more about that. Well, even back then, it was pretty clear to me that, you know, they two are very different people in, in everything, in terms of their background, in terms of their demeanor. But clearly, uh, it seemed to me that Donald Trump was clearly inspired by some of the things that Vladimir Putin had been doing in the way that he handles the press, in the way that he handles his critics, how he tries to shut them down or divert the attention to something else, something less damaging or something less incriminating, mm -hmm. or creating a whole bunch of nothing out of nothing uh, mm -hmm. like we have. For example, in, in Russia, we have clearly ridiculous bills intended to nothing else but raise a lot of outrage mm -hmm. and the press's attention because that's the way we work uh, you know we are easily distracted and we all take the bait and we spend an inordinate amount of time on a bill that may or may not pass mm -hmm. on how ridiculous or outrageous it is but then something important happens and uh, nobody is there to notice Yes. So uh, what's an example? Because you know that I participate as much as I try not to in the fallacy that all the Kremlin thinks about all day long is the American White House. And I know that's not true. No, so, no, I, no And I know because... partly from you that it's not true. <laughs> no, it's, it's not because the Kremlin has enough on its plate to worry about. Whenever I hear that the Kremlin is meddling in elections here and there, I always come back to Russian elections in Russian regions far away from Moscow. Mm. Russia is very centralized. And it's uh, very much biased to the, to the West because it's laterally spread over 11 time zones and Moscow is in the far, far west of this huge country. Yeah. We have regional elections now and then. And then you can see how weakening the Kremlin's grip is on these regions. Uh, sometimes there is an outlier out of the blue who wins elections in, uh, uh, against an incumbent supported by the Kremlin. But then this outlier wins in a landslide. And you can see all the tricks deployed in, the, in this region, like voter suppression or vo voter manipulation or press manipulation or fake news about the candidate. But nothing helps. And even there, even there in Russia, where the Kremlin has or at least used to have almost absolute control over the media and local politics, it still loses. So wow. even that, yeah, even that it's not, it's not enough. So we had a couple of these, you know, election anomalies in Russia in the past couple of years. <laughs> whenever, whenever I see these bombastic headlines, like the Kremlin is manipulating the White House or, you know, there are onion domes sprouting from the White House or, <laughs> uh, or 
Onion Towns, As- right, right. <laughs> yeah, assertions that, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump has been a Russian asset since uh, 1987. You know, I keep I keep coming back to these elections in a far-flung region in, in Russia that, you know, the Kremlin candidate lost. <laughs> so the Kremlin can, can, can barely meddle in its own elections. <laughs> ah. <laughs> That, I mean, that is that is fascinating. And it is after the Mueller report came out here, not to change the focus, but no. after the Mueller report came out here, it was amazing given what a boost Trump got from, well, of course, not just Kremlin interference, but from gerrymandering, from messing with the voter software, from, you know, all kinds of tampering that he still decisively lost the popular vote. So as you point out, even with a huge amount of control, Ideally, the Russian and American people object to these governments that represent them or don't represent them and purport to represent them, but falsely. And that is heartening. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard me tweet this. I don't know if you agree with it, but Gary Kasparov said at at PutinCon, do you know about this thing? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's not your favorite. We'll get to that. But he said um, he said what you said, basically, which is that, you know, Russia can can flip in a in a second and it you know it proceeds by revolutions it proceeds by in sometimes sometimes the outer districts um uh candidates from the outer districts suddenly getting getting attention and getting authority and um and and also the people uh and that this can happen very quickly it's not true in the same way in the United States but but he also said you know, look to what the tyrant or look to what Putin fears to find out what will happen. You know, protests, dissident journalists like yourself, um, because what he fears is what will come to pass. <laughs> uh, well, where I don't quite agree with yeah. Mr. Kasparov is uh, this kind of apocalyptic view of, of Vladimir Putin as this uh, you know, omnipotent, all-powerful, uh, omniscient uh, dictator who controls everything and uh, uh, you know uh, controls the entire the entirety of Russia and meddles in elections here and there. Because, well, I, uh, f- for one, I can see that it's not quite as straightforward as that, and there are very clear limits to Kremlin control, mm-hmm. and they are very much aware of the downsides of this uh, hyper-centralized system. Another thing is that, you know, seeing him as this supervillain is exactly what he wants. If you subscribe to this view of him mm-hmm. as this Bond villain who is on, on top of everything and controls everything, that's exactly what he wants. Yes. That's exactly how he wants to be seen. So you're... You <laughs> yes. He's not a supervillain. He may not be a not, a, not a very pleasant man, and he has a lot of power, but his power is finite, and he is he is much more literate and well-read than Donald Trump. Mm. But still, you can see his pretty mediocre persona break through the, the facade that he has been building for himself for, mm-hmm. for, the, for the last 11 years. His ratings are not dramatically, but steadily falling because he had to make a number of unpopular decisions. And although he has tried to distance himself from this policymaking that is uh, guaranteed to uh, result in a downturn in his ratings, mm-hmm. he still had to accept the portion, at least a portion of the blame. And you can see that people are, you know, even his supporters, I've talked to a few, there are people who genuinely support him, and I don't blame them because they have their own reasons to do so, but even they uh, recognize that he is not, you, you know, you, you'll be hard-pressed to, to find a, a person so religiously devoted to Putin. Most Russians I've talked to are pretty realistic, 
Mm-hmm. And his biggest selling point is that he brings stability. Not right. because he's a... Uh, He's such a wonderful man, but because uh, in people, especially of the older generations, Russians yeah. in the 50s now, yeah. they are very acutely aware of the alternative. Which is a Yeltsin uh, figure. Yeah, who, by the way, was pretty popular at the time with the Amer- American foreign policy circles. And he was oh, a good yeah. friend of yeah Bill Clinton. He had their uh, unanimous support from the White House. At the time when he was, uh, you know, he was facing a re-election with his ratings in the signal digits. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bill Clinton's administration threw their full support behind this wildly unpopular incumbent. You can see this argument every once in a while whenever the issue of Russian meddling pops up. Uh, There will be, invariably, in every Twitter thread, there will be a person who will post this uh, Time magazine cover from 1996 with Boris Yeltsin already his face red and bloated from his alcohol addiction and the title, Yanks to the Rescue. Because it was was pretty out there in the open, unlike this low-key... Twitter bots and everything. No, uh, you know, there was a bunch of, you know, several dozen American uh, uh, political engineers and consultants who parachuted into Moscow and occupied a whole floor of a hotel called President Hotel in downtown Moscow. So, yeah, it was much, much more obvious and in your face, yeah. you know, this yeah, with this manipulation. So a lot of Russians still hold a grudge. Yes, about that. I mean, that is something that hasn't been covered here. We know yeah. that there are moments in the Arab Spring that pissed off Putin. We know he had a longstanding desire to make Russia great and if not exactly rebuild the Soviet empire, get some of the prestige of that empire that he'd been insulted by Obama calling Russia a regional power. But I don't think we knew this exact thing about Yeltsin, or at least I didn't put my finger on it. And I do think it's useful for Americans, for listeners, to think, to, if you can remember how we felt about Yeltsin in 1996. First, the surprise that Russians didn't love Gorbachev the way we loved him here. But then Yeltsin is a perfect figure because Trump's popularity in Russia, at least in 2016, is akin to Yeltsin's popularity in the United States in 1996, that we looked at him and we just thought, he's jolly, he likes Americans, okay, he drinks too much, but he doesn't look like a tyrant. He doesn't look like Stalin or Brezhnev. He's just not scary. Like, we could manage him. And that is, I don't know if you agree with me, but that is a little bit analogous to the way Trump is represented to Russians. And I don't mean in Moscow, but in the Caucasus outside You know, I saw some interviews where people just had like a warm feeling toward Donald Trump the way I, you know, I used to have a warm feeling toward Yeltsin. Yeah, he tends to do that. Yeah. People not just in Russia or in uh, or in the Caucasus. I've seen I've seen people in former Yugoslavia uh, forming a quite bizarre fan base of of Donald Trump. And uh, they were wearing, you know, these Trump T-shirts. Uh, well, yeah, he tends to um, evoke these emotions in people, I, I guess. But uh, 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 whenever in Russia, uh, whenever you mention uh, the, uh, th- there are always two stages to this uh, to, the, to to this argument: did we or didn't we not meddle in in uh, the U.S. elections? Uh, and when you're arguing with the uh, with the Kremlin loyalist, it always goes the same uh, the, the the same route, the same mm-hmm. kind of forking path. So either uh, you know, they, they cannot uh, uh, just 
say that out loud that yes we did but then he'll find a way to kind of accept the pride of it the, the pride of the achievement mm. without accepting any any of the blame he'll say yes maybe we did i, di- I don't know anything about that but didn't the Amer- but didn't the americans meddle in mm-hmm. our elections in 1996 yeah, uh, so it's always a circular argument uh, yes. that always come that always comes back to 1996 uh yeah so I- there there's that and then the, there was a, another important pivotal point in in uh, russian's attitude to to to, uni- to the united states is the 1999 bombing of Bel- of belgrade mm-hmm. uh which uh even among my peers i'm 38 now and at the time i was uh what 12 yeah uh uh and a lot of my uh my peers pretty pretty uh, uh liberal uh art students and and some such uh, they all were so shocked at the brazenness of that of of that campaign. Uh, uh, yes. Were and that was another, I'd say, even for uh, the the Yeltsin re-election was the uh, uh, the pivoting point for the anti-Americanism of the earlier generation, mm-hmm. who were old enough in the nineties to remember the chaos and the poverty and everything. Mm-hmm. But for my generation, it was the nineteen ninety nine bombing of Belgrade. Mm-hmm. And in these two generations, whenever you talk to people about the American two thousand sixteen elections, it will always come back to these points. So didn't the Americans meddle in other elections too? This is something I think you brought up in that other conversation about the press conferences. And I've heard this called kettle logic, and our president has become very expert at it. You know, something like, I didn't do it is number one. Two, everybody does it. And three, it's not a crime. It's smart what I did. Yeah. And they're all contradictory, but they all sort of add up to a forceful rejection of criticism. You actually heard the Kremlin do it with Sochi. Yeah. I don't know if you follow it at all, but our college admissions scandal here where people have cheated their way into college. I mean, really egregiously cheated. I don't know if you follow this at all. Yeah. But they say, well, everybody does it. You know, same thing. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. It's very familiar. Every argument and every corruption scandal, they all look and sound so familiar. Yeah. And that's another point I wanted to make because I've, in these two and a half years since we spoke last, I've been monitoring closely the coverage of Russia in the American media. Yeah. And one of the uh, common themes that pop up here and there in arguments and in talk show panels is that Russians are either infecting the American psyche with these alien and destructive notions, manipulating Americans into hating each other, or alternatively, that Russians are exploiting the rifts in the American society, or you know, exploiting divisions, or sowing chaos, or whatever you can think of, whatever metaphor for setting people against each other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which sounds very unlikely to me for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. One being last year, I went on a fellowship in the United States with the World Press Institute for nine weeks. Yeah, and I traveled the entire United States from northern Minnesota to uh, to Texas to California, everywhere. And I've talked to a whole bunch of different people, from local party leaders to farmers to uh, factory workers uh, to activists and organizers to hundreds and hundreds of Americans of different races and classes and uh, and everything. It was a very illuminating experience. And one thing I wanted to say is that, okay, Twitter is an extremely toxic place. And if you only based your experience with a different culture on Twitter, okay, that's that's a very depressing view of the world because <laughs> every single American I talked to was extremely nice to me and welcoming and open-minded. <laughs> the, yes, Yasha Monk, my co-host, says this and has gotten off Twitter in general, planning to get off Twitter. One thing that happens to me with Russians like yourself is that I forget sometimes how, let's see, 
I don't know if you saw this movie Icarus about the Sochi doping scandal. It was really interesting. The cyclist in the movie who first tries to get anabolic steroids from an American doctor, and that doctor has had tons of plastic surgery, and he's committed to youth culture, and he's just, you know, he's horrible looking. He looks like Frankenstein. Then he's told to go to Grigory Rodchenko, this figure known for doping and anti-doping at the same time in Russia. And when that guy comes over his Skype... You just are reminded how much fun this is. <laughs> you know, there's sort of, I don't know, sort of a sense. It's not all that dark. And this guy's literate. He has a sense of humor. And you just, you know, feel like we don't have to imagine, I don't know, just like not a totally tragic view of life. <laughs> I think that's part of your role. I hope you don't clear off Twitter altogether because you do a lot of joking on Twitter that we get so heavy. I mean, every time a headline says, you know, something like Russians hacked the election, you just write, I didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> so one of the points I wanted to come back to uh, yeah. is that, unfortunately, although I'm, I met hundreds of different, but always invariably nice and warm people in the United States. Yeah. I also saw that there's actually very little that we could do in terms of tearing the society apart. Ah. Because, yeah, because uh, I'm afraid that the uh, in some places that I've seen, the American society is pretty much broken apart without any uh, mm -hmm. outside help. Because the inequality, all the racial, all the poverty that I've seen mm -hmm. and the extremes of poverty and, and wealth in the, in, in the Bay Area, for example, in downtown San Francisco. Yes. And the racial divisions and everything... Even if we wanted to, there is little that, that we could really do to e further those divisions, even even to make them even worse than, than, than they already are. Mm -hmm. Back to one point that I've seen uh, pop up here and then about Russians, you know, injecting these alien notions and divisions in American society. Let me tell you something. We didn't really have a pro-life movement in Russia until who do you think introduced it into Russia? <laughs> okay, good question. Tell me. Yeah. Well, of course, it was the uh, American religious right because, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia was pretty liberal uh, in terms of abortion, abortions, much more so than the United States. You can get an abortion from, well, of course, with the universal healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to pay anything for it. And uh, it's universally available. And some people say that it's too too available. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's beside the point. But then somewhere in the early 2000s, we had these American religious right and Republicans parachute into Russia and literally implant these policies, these pro-life policies into America, into the Russian politics, something that was entirely alien to us. We never had the pro-life movement and we never had pro-life politics. That brings me to something I want to bring up with you, which is I know we both dislike fake Cyrillic and sort of the vilification with all kinds of tropes and typography of Russia. But I want to use a French phrase, danse macabre, a sort of dance of death. So I've been trying to work out this idea for the New York Review of Books about the long danse macabre between Russia and the United States. I mean, it's like we're always locked in this. And it's strange because, mm. as you point out, Moscow is much closer to Europe. We have competing fantasies and attractions and revulsions from each other that have lasted a long time. I was in St. Petersburg for the 1996 election of Yeltsin election in quotation marks. And I remember, well, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I've certainly said it on the show. We did a unit in my very liberal school 
about it was kind of a Russians love their children too, but it was <laughs> it was very starry eyed about the Soviet Union. We were really kind of thought that Europe would fall pretty soon and, you know, everything would would be sorted out and that there would be a kind of communist fantasy there. And this is the 70s, so we were pretty far down the road. But one of the things we did, and I'm sorry to listeners if you've heard this before, but it still seems so striking to me. My classmates and I were asked to write letters to Yuri Andropov, then the um, the prime minister. Uh, well, yeah, that was president. you. That was I've seen those letters. <laughs> They're very yes, exactly. But not asking, not asking to disarm, but simply asking that our very small town in New Hampshire, four thousand people, very you know far north, that our town be designated a, a, a target, so we would die in the blast and not the fallout. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Listen, I think I've seen the response in a Russian in a, in a Soviet magazine uh, <laughs> with uh, Andropov responding to these uh, American teenage girl oh, really? telling her, "Yeah, I, n- I I'm not sure if it was you, but <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised." But I, I very distinctly remember this uh, uh, this exchange between uh, some American teenagers writing letters to Andropov and uh, yeah. him writing writing them back, and there was these letters were published in a Soviet youth magazine. Oh. And, oh my gosh, yeah, and, all and right. he was, uh, yeah, there was, uh, there was in the, I think somebody posted a copy of this magazine recently on, uh, on Russian social media, and there was this exchange between Yuri Andropov and an American teenage girl, <laughs> and he was reassuring her that no, uh, we don't really want to destroy the United States with <laughs> nuclear weapons, and yeah. uh, we just want, we just want to live in peace, and uh, <laughs> uh, we're just building these weapons because of the, uh, we need to defend ourselves, but we're not building them to destroy you, my friend, uh, in uh, whatever New. <laughs> Hampshire. Yes. So, yeah, there was a different time back then. That is fantastic. I love that you all are still publishing those letters. I definitely did a lot of studying of radiation and fallout to be sure to decide which I wanted to be vaporized in a second or to have radiation wounds and mutations to the reproductive system. Really great way to spend your teenage years. I want <laughs> to talk to you about the opposition to Putin in Russia. So in particular, it's been a long time on this show since we talked about Alexei Navalny, whom some consider, you know, the great hope. He's appealing to Americans. He has, for people who don't know, a kind of Jon Stewart style, and he's very brave. He persists in spite of what he's, he's been imprisoned. He may be in prison right now, and Putin really hates him. He gets under Putin's skin. But maybe I have this wrong. And now I'm suspicious of anyone Americans like because you're <laughs> reminding me that Yeltsin was extremely unpopular in Russia. So tell me about Navalny. Uh, you'll probably be surprised that he is much farther than Donald Trump uh, to the right on certain issues. Mm. And with Putin on the far left of him, <laughs> on Ooh. issues like gun control and immigration. Wow. Uh, yeah, he's very anti-immigration and, and pro-gun. Yikes. So I wouldn't I wouldn't exactly call him the uh, Russian liberal opposition. Mm-hmm. So he's more like a, like a right-wing libertarian uh, uh, sort of in his politics. I see. Although he has uh, you know he's uh, he's very flexible to the point of uh, you know being you know populist and opportunist. Like for example, now he's pivoting to the left, like he's organizing his own, la- his own labor union. Uh-huh. So yeah, and he's an extreme opposition to Putin, but that doesn't make him an undisputed leader of the opposition. Okay. Because there is no like single hashtag resistance to Donald Trump. <laughs> Likewise, there is no kind of unified opposition to Putin. And people inside this very, very loosely defined opposition uh, are sometimes much more opposed to each other than to Putin. 
But that's, I think, that's uh, that applies to uh, to any country. In UK terms, there is no Labour Party to uh, the Putin's Conservative Party. And, well, there's a lot of people with a lot of different policies and issues uh, in mind. And it's quite symptomatic. And it's, and, and it's quite disheartening as well, because a liberal magazine called The New Times, they ran a series of interviews with leaders of the opposition, asking them to kind of paint a post-Putin future for Russia. Hmm. And every single case, it was an utter failure, mm. probably with the exception of Alexei Navalny, uh, who is mm. the only one who does actually have have a very active and dedicated base, mm-hmm. unlike all the other opposition figures who don't really have a following or a party or for different reasons. Uh, but Navalny, uh, unlike all of them, he does have a very young, a very active uh, a base and uh, who can uh, uh, do uh, things like canvassing for elections or volunteering at elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's it's a formidable force, mm-hmm. but still it's it's still it, it's not enough to even make a dent mm. uh, at, at this point. Although he does, you know, they they uh, uh, they nip and tuck at this and uh, at, at this Kremlin colossus on its margins, hmm. and they're sometimes quite successful at that. And they are meeting very severe backlash uh, yeah. from the authorities, and many have been in jail and uh, arrested and harassed by the authorities. Uh, but uh, still, even with the uh, with a figure like Alexei Navalny, the uh, Russian opposition is far from being united. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, his his biggest uh, his his platform uh, is it's it's an anti corruption platform, which mm-hmm. is uh, which is great to attract uh, 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 an audience, a base mm-hmm. to uh, to. Uh, uh, activate a base uh, because corruption uh, is it's very different in Russia than it used to be uh, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So it's kind of seeping upwards. Uh, so you see uh, uh, less cor- uh, less direct corruptions, uh, cor- corruption like traffic cops aren't shaking you down for uh, a couple of hundred rubles anymore. Okay. Uh, uh, but then, and you kind of stop worrying about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, you're not in you're not in constant fear of being shaken down for the last rubles you have in your pockets. Yeah. But then, but then you start noticing that uh, you know your utilities bill, uh, utility utility bills are uh, are adding a couple of figures every every month, and uh, then you start digging into it, and you see that you know actually this utility company is owned by uh, a brother of a uh, or of a of a nephew or of someone mm. uh, in the Kremlin and close to it. And you see, like it's a big cartel, and it's it's not uniquely Russian, you know. It's no, uh, it's it's that... it's, ne- it's very basic nepotism. Yeah. Uh, but once you start noticing noticing it, it's kind of, kind of uh, uh, you know, the the sense of injustice is 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 very acute and it's burning uh, you from the inside, and you you want to do something about it, and uh, uh, and then you look around and whoa, there's this very popular anti-corruption movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it works for a few years, yeah. Uh, but then you have to uh, offer something more, uh, more solid, more you know, more concrete than just you know we're gonna f- we're gonna fight corruption. We're gonna we're gonna fight clear corruption. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't usually work like that. And uh, uh, I fail to name one single country in the world that is entirely free of corruption. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this platform won't take you much farther than that. Right. This is the Navalny platform. Well, it's nice to see, in spite of the fact that his policy positions, I mean, right and left are confusing yeah. and can't don't map exactly onto American right and left. On the other hand, there have been a lot of reformers who have swept in like Navalny and then consolidated power around unsavory 
policies. <laughs> but anyway, he's at least one to watch, and I recommend people follow him. I think he's just at Navalny. Last question. What is the danger of overstating the power of an adversary like the Kremlin? Because we are certainly worried in the United States that people don't take information warfare, and I don't mean just from the Kremlin, but from far right, far left media. In social media, you know, you say Twitter's a toxic place. Certainly, in my view, Facebook is a toxic place. But what's the danger of overstating the power? Because it seems... More like our immune systems are too low in the United States than they're too high. One very clear danger of overstating the uh, the dangers of, I don't know, Kremlinism of yeah. Putinism is that you are, by going with these apocalyptic headlines like yeah. uh, Putin is pulling the strings and, uh, you know, Trump is, uh, Trump is Putin's puppet and, uh, yeah. you know, the, the Kremlin is, it's like most of the time it's not the Kremlin, it's a, it's a church that stands... Uh, Near to it, but not inside. But never mind. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not the onion domes are not the Kremlin. You know, pic, picture desk editors, please take note. The <laughs> onion domes are not in the Kremlin. If you take away one yeah. thing, the onion domes yeah. are not the Kremlin, guys. You are giving ammunition to the forces inside Russia itself. You are caressing Putin's ego because he. That's exactly how he himself. Well, he himself wants to be seen. The point I ma made earlier. And then you are by uh, going along with these assertions that every once in a while tend to devolve into outright conspiracy theories yeah. is that they are dis they are distracting from very real and very acute issues that are completely domestic to, to, to the United States. Mm -hmm. For example, Russia and the United States are so closely linked and they we have been, you know, something that's a, a factoid that in my travels around the United States, not a single person actually was aware of is that uh, in the uh, uh, on the verge of the 19th and 20th century, the United States uh, twice saved Russia from famine. Russia once sent its imperial fleet to New York to support the Democrats in the Civil War, and uh, the United States saved the uh, Russians from millions of deaths in an early 20th century famine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have been partners and two great nations closely working together and being good friends for we have been so for much much longer than the current two years of this of this pure silliness really so overstating these issues of russian meddling which mm -hmm. some things did really happen mm -hmm. and i i know because they have been happening in russia domestically since 2010 i think mm -hmm. since i started mm -hmm. since I, I joined actually twitter to monitor some influence campaign on Twitter mm. in 2010. Hmm. It's yeah. the same tactics that have been employed in Russia domestically. Right. And not very effectively. But I will say, I don't know if you saw this in your safari to Minnesota when you were touring here, but mm. it's like smallpox, you know. Russians have some more greater immunity to propaganda because you have more experience with it. You can read, <laughs> look through it. And you guys dropped a bunch of smallpox blankets on us. And we are not <laughs> immune. And, you know, it is it, I, I actually became interested in Trump and it felt like our brains are co we were cognitively vulnerable in a way that was confusing to me when I started to see friends of mine on Facebook saying and I'm not saying this is a Kremlin thing, but saying things that were just, you know, completely out there. Like it, it just I thought embarrassing themselves by rehashing talking points that they had gotten in their peripheral vision in social media that to me it seems as you say silly and that was quite disturbing because these are people whose you know advanced degrees whose whose education whose travels should have toughened up their brains 
<laughs> and it seemed like we weren't there. You know, it's like uh, it's like Russian immunity to Levi's and Billy Joel or whatever right after right after the end of the Soviet Union. You know, you guys just thought a lot of American really dopey culture was exciting. And I don't know, but I feel like that happened here. And, you know, Americans amplified some of the worst of the fake news and propaganda all on uh, our uh, own. Uh, uh, uh. Let me quickly... Uh, Good, I like this, of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you see, with, to go with your smallpox blankets analogy, yeah. we're kind of dropping them on ourselves as well because we are kind of locked in this beer hug and, and we have been for a few hundred years. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably true that you can export or, or inject or transplant some far left or far right ideas into the uh, American society and infect them or whatever. But... It kind of, because we're so closely culturally linked together, despite the ocean that separates us, mm -hmm. it goes both ways because the technologies that we're using are American and the propaganda techniques that have been described since the 1920s in books like Edward Bernays yes. and Walter Lippmann's. Oh, look, Americans! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and just think about that. And actually, one of the last stories that I covered as an editor yeah. was a bunch of guys in, in Russia who formed these, these sexist, terribly misogynist uh, group harassing women for posting nude pictures online. Mm -hmm. And they were revealing and, you know, harassing these, uh, these young girls for posting a nude picture. Uh, and they were sending them to their boyfriends and, and, and parents and revealing in their uh, tears and humiliation and embarrassment. But one thing that struck me is that they were literally cosplaying the Proud Boys. Uh, yeah, the women. So, you mean? No, no, no. These these guys. They, oh. they, 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 there was a movement that's, that was called the State of Man, something like that. Yeah, so it's a wordplay on the country for men, something like that. Yeah. So and they were li quite literally in the in you know in rhetoric and in visual aesthetic, uh, and they were cosplaying the American alt right. Mm. Uh, and you can see this every once in a, and you can see this, you can see this quite often. You can see the uh, Russian radicals adopting you know. Uh, uh, the 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 whole aesthetic, the 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 politics, the 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 aesthetics of uh, American far right movements. The, so the, it goes both ways. Yes, and this point about abortion is definitely well taken. My guest today has been Alexei Kavalnov. He's a Russian journalist, former Moscow Times writer, and head of investigations at the Medusa Project. It's on Twitter at Medusa M E D U Z A Project, and he can be found at Alexei underscore Kavalov. A-L-E-X-E-Y underscore K-O-V-L-E-V. It's always great to talk to you. Don't block me on Twitter as a recipe. <laughs> Just keep me at least in the mix, no. and I'll do the same with you. Okay, great to talk to you, Virginia. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. So that's it for today's show. What did you think? Find us on Twitter. Don't bottle up your feelings. Express them. I'm at page 88, and the show is is at Real Trumpcast. But don't stop there. Head to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up to be a Plus member. Today's the day, a flat $35. I mean, that is the price of a small cup of espresso. $35 for the first year gives you access to Trumpcast and a roster of brilliant Slate podcasts, old and new, ad-free. To sign up, go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by the brilliant Melissa Kaplan with help from the equally brilliant Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald J. Trump. He's the best Trump actor. Let's just face it. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. My attorney, Bill Barr. 
I mean, the AG, Bill Barr, is doing a fantastic job defending himself in front of the horrible Democrats who want to have oversight.